Jaws of Justice Radio investigates how we can achieve justice from a system of laws deeply rooted in economic, political, and social inequality. We strive to dispel misconceptions created by the news and entertainment industries as well as the fear-mongering of the political system. Listen in as we search out the tools needed to make our community a more just environment. Jaws of Justice Radio, Mondays at 9 a.m., right after Democracy Now! Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Today, host Margot Patterson speaks with her guest, Nicholas J.S. Davies, about the book he's written with Medea Benjamin, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. Nicholas Davies will be live in our studio. He's an independent journalist and a researcher with Code Pink. He has come to Kansas City for a book talk, which is beginning on Jaws of Justice. He's scheduled to speak later today at the All Souls Unitarian Church in Kansas City, Missouri, and at the University of Missouri tomorrow on December 6th. Code Pink sees this as an excellent moment to start the diplomatic peace negotiations that the U.S. and the United Kingdom torpedoed in April. Russia's brutal February 2022 invasion of Ukraine has attracted widespread condemnation across the West. Government and media circles present the conflict as a simple dichotomy between an evil empire and an innocent victim. Nicholas Davies insists the picture is more complicated. We hope listeners will call in during our radio hour. Our number is 816-931-5534. That's 816 816- Nine three one five five three four. We're glad to hear your opinion. We'll play our calendar at the midpoint of our hour, and then Margot will also speak with Chris Mann, an organizer for the Missouri Book Talk. Many listeners may be familiar with Chris, who's been an active volunteer at PeaceWorks KC and KKFI. Code Pink is an internationally active non-governmental organization that describes itself as a grassroots peace and social justice movement working to end U.S.-funded wars. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. This is the Jaws of Justice. I'm Margot Patterson. Law and order, peace and justice, in one way or another, every week this program touches on these, but we seldom do so on an international level. War represents the complete breakdown of all of these elements, and this week my guest, Nicholas Davies, will talk about his new book, War in Ukraine, as he is also the author of an earlier book, Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion and Destruction of Iraq. Nicholas Davies, welcome to Jaws of Justice. Thank you for having me. Nicholas, I'm going to ask you probably the question you get all the time. Why did you and Medea Benjamin decide to write this book? What did you hope to accomplish? Well, we, we hope that this will give readers uh, the ability to um, understand uh, what led up to this crisis, uh, who was responsible for what, in, in the process that led up to this crisis. Um, and uh, just to really, to get past the rather straightforward black and white narrative uh, that, um, you know, the, that our politicians and our media have, um, have, have framed this within. As you mentioned, your book provides some of the historical context for the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Could you talk about some of the chief events leading up to the invasion in February? Yes. I, I, I mean, I, th- I think for, for, for all of us, the idea, the idea that, that we are now uh, all but at war with Russia, the other country in the world, that you know between between in, between the US and Russia we possess more than 90% of the world's nuclear weapons we had a 45 year long cold war 
uh, that, that threatened the existence of, of, of humanity and of our civilization. And we all breathed such a huge sigh of relief when, when that war ended. And, and people spoke about a peace dividend that, that we could now actually invest in all the other things that, that we care about in our own communities and, and in our country and in the world. And, um, <clears throat> but really where that started to unravel is that there were others in the US and in the West who, who really saw an opportunity for a power dividend that without the opposition of the Soviet Union and its allies, there was really sort of no limit to our American and Western power in the world. And and there was there was no longer the danger that that uh, a small war in the Middle East could could suddenly blow up into World War Three, and so the U.S. actually started using military force more aggressively around the world. Um, in terms of Europe, which was now at, at peace and uh, without the threat of huge militaries facing each other across the Iron Curtain, um, the, the Warsaw Pact on the other side dissolved, but NATO started expanding. Other countries wanted the protection of being part of NATO, and, and so NATO gradually expanded right up to Russia's borders. And I, I'd just like to read you a couple of little quotes from the book. I, I know I'm giving a long answer Certainly to this Certainly, I was this about question, to begin but <laughs> to read a quote from your book. So yes, go right ahead. Okay, so, um, so when President Clinton was contemplating beginning to expand NATO to admit uh, the Czech Republic and Poland and Hungary, um, 50 uh, wise old men, 50 foreign policy experts, old cold warriors who, like the rest of us, were relieved at the end of the Cold War. They wrote a, an open letter to President Clinton in which they said that NATO expansion eastward would be a policy error of historic proportions that would unsettle European stability. They also said it would be expensive and unnecessary given that Russia posed no threat to its Western neighbors. And in fact, when Clinton actually did it, George Kennan, the, uh, the godfather of the containment policy of the Cold War, did an interview with the New York Times. And this is what he said. He said, I think the Russians will gradually react quite adversely and it will affect their policies. I think it is a tragic mistake. There was no reason for this whatsoever. No one was threatening anybody else. And so after you know, 18 more countries joined NATO, so it grew from 12 countries to 30. And then in 2008, the question of whether Ukraine should join NATO was debated at a NATO summit in Bucharest. And um, someone by the name of William Burns, who happens now to be the director of the CIA, was the US ambassador to Moscow at that time. And he said in a, in a memo to Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, uh, he said, Ukrainian entry into NATO is the brightest of all red lines for the Russian elite, not just Putin. In more than two and a half years of conversations with key Russian players from knuckle draggers in the dark recesses of the Kremlin to Putin's sharpest liberal critics. I have yet to find anyone who views Ukraine 
in NATO as anything other than a direct challenge to Russian interests. So I think what we can say is that we were warned <laughs> by wise people and our government, successive administrations were warned by wise people that expanding NATO right up to the borders of Russia would be seen as very threatening to them. And I think this has created what, what in international relations is termed a security dilemma. And that is in which two countries um, each believe that they are arming themselves defensively because they feel threatened by the other. But the other side views this as anything but defensive. They see a, a, a threat being built up and escalated against themselves. And at, at there are points in this process where the US has act, and NATO have actually lied to the Russians about their why they are doing what they are doing, which, yes, uh, well, let, let me just finish that. And, and that is when they started putting anti-ballistic missiles in Poland and Romania. They claimed that this was actually as a defense against uh, what was, in fact, a non-existent Iranian, Iranian nuclear threat. They told the Russians, oh, this has nothing to do with you. And They've since given up that pretense because obviously it clearly was about Russia all along. So, you know, there are, there are reasons why both sides came to fear the other once again, despite the end of the Cold War. And when you're talking about both sides, I assume you're talking about Ukraine and Russia, not the United States, because the United States wasn't threatened by Russia. Am I correct there, or, or did you mean to say? Well, I, no, I, I do mean the United States because um, uh, it, it's the U.S. and NATO that has expanded. It's NATO that has expanded right up to Russia's borders. And, and you, the U, U.S. Uh, policy has really driven that to a great extent when, when they told Ukraine that it would one day be able to join NATO in 2008. It was the Bush administration that was pushing that. France and Germany and some other European countries were very worried about that and didn't, did not want to do that. But they eventually agreed to make this, this vague commitment to say that Ukraine will become a member of NATO. They didn't say when. There was no nothing concrete attached to that commitment. But um, it, it certainly had the effect that William Burns warned that it would in Moscow. Well, I want to ask you more about uh, that later, because given European qualms about holding out the promise of uh, Ukraine being uh, part of NATO, I've been surprised by how all in they are uh, with this war. Um, but I'll ask you that first. But first, let me ask you about something else in your book, where you talk about Western uh, reporting since 2004, which has characterized the civil war in the East as a Russian invasion, appears to be part of a deceptive information war that only obscures the complicated nature of the conflict. Talk to us about that civil war which began in Ukraine eight years ago. Yeah, that came about as a result of, of what we call and what we call a coup in Kiev. And we explain how, how that came about and, and why we call it a coup. Um, um, Ukraine was, was very divided politically. There, there, and it, in the course of um, really the from about the year two thousand to two thousand fourteen, there were alternating regimes, if you like, in Ukraine that were pro-Western and and you could say pro-Russian. Certainly, that wanted to maintain uh, Ukraine's traditional ties with the Russians. Um, and in general, it was the uh, Russian-speaking 
populations in the east and the south of Ukraine that that had closer ties to Russia and wanted to maintain those ties, and in particular in, in Crimea too, which is um, to the south of Ukraine. And, um, and then on the other hand, you had very, um, a, a very nationalist U- Ukrainian movement in the West uh, based in Lviv. Um, and, and so with the people, you know, and the people in the middle, sort of in the middle. But um, so Ukraine was quite a divided country. Um, the coup began as uh, nonviolent protests in Kyiv. But when Yanukovych uh, refused an agreement presented him by the European Union, that would have led eventually to Ukraine becoming a member of the European Union. And he, he rejected that agreement for rational reasons. It, it was not a very fair agreement. It opened up Ukraine's markets to uh, com- companies from the European Union without reciprocating and giving Ukraine the same access to European markets. Um, uh, and um, so the people, especially from the west of Ukraine, who were opposed to that, began protests in Kiev. And um, <clears throat> the, the police were very repressive and tried to break up the, the um, encampment that the protesters had set up in the main square. And, but, but little by little over the months, more and more of the extreme right-wing nationalists, including uh, actual neo-Nazi groups, became involved and began to arm themselves, began to uh, not just defend the square against the police, but to actually conduct marches to march from the square to the parliament, um, threatening really to ultimately to overthrow the government, which which is what happened. And you know, and the police would set up barricades. There were pitched battles. Eventually, they, they reached the point where people were being killed in these battles between, you know, violent armed protesters and the police. So eventually, despite an agreement between the president Yanukovych and, uh, and the opposition parties for a political transition, that, that agreement was mediated by the foreign ministers of France, Germany, and Poland. The three main opposition parties, including the extreme right neo-Nazi party all agreed to that. But at that point, the armed groups controlling the, the square, the Maidan, the protests, um, refused. And, and so they marched on the parliament and basically um, overthrew the government. Well, one question I have is, all this fervor had to do with EU membership, which seems an unlikely um, cause of so much violence, but was it simply that the uh, police had shown sufficient violence that that sort of set off a spiral of violence between police and protesters, or did people really care that intensely about EU membership? Well, they did at the beginning. That's what, in fact, they they called they they sort of. The, the term for the square is the Maidan, which means the sort of main square or central square. And they, they sort of, the, the protesters renamed it the Euro Maidan. That's how central the European Union, their aspirations to join the European Union were to the protests at the beginning. And, um, you know, and the areas of Western Ukraine that um, where this this Ukrainian nationalism was strongest, they're parts of Ukraine that at times in history have been part of Poland or other other countries, um, and um, so uh, after after the at the, at the point where the government was overthrown, the opposition parties took power, 
Yanukovych fled to Russia. He was the former president. The Gallup poll, the Gallup organization, took a poll of Ukrainians um, two months after after the coup and asked them, do you believe that this government that has now come to power since Yanukovych fled the country, do you believe that this government is in fact the legitimate government of Ukraine? And only 51% of Ukrainians agreed. That's not, uh, the question wasn't whether they supported the government or not. It was just whether they even regarded it as a legitimate government. And um, so, so the country really was divided. And it was divided very much on geographical uh, basis. It was the people in the east, and in particular in Crimea too, who rejected and were, and were in fact themselves now conducting large protests against the new government. Well, prior to the 2014 coup, which the United States seemed to have played some role in, the U.S. had spent about $5 billion care, uh, funneled through the National Endowment uh, for Democracy to support in opposition parties. After a pro-Western government took power, which you re just referred to, it, uh, the U.S. then spent money building up Ukraine's military, first under Obama and then more extensively under Trump. Why did it do that? Are there resources in Ukraine that make the country especially valuable? Was it just a way of trying to further hem Russia in? Yeah, it's um, the... <sighs> What, what, I mean, what happened a after, just to sort of continue the story I was telling, which will lead to um, the answer to your question, I think. Uh, the um, Crimea declared independence from Ukraine. With, they held a referendum, which, I mean, the, the referendum, it's disputed internationally how reflective it really was. But, I mean, something like 97% of the people who voted voted for independence from Ukraine. Then, uh, in the east, the two provinces of Luhansk and Donetsk held referend similar referendums on independence. Now, these were not supported by Russia. Russia was not agreeing to take them as part of Russia, as it did with Crimea. But again, over, you know, 80-90% of the people voted to secede from Ukraine, and they declared themselves to be the, the People's Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. And they had support from Russia. But um, the Ukrainian government then sent its military to sort of re you know suppress these secessionist movements and 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 get those provinces back um the ukrainian military was not very keen on this uh some of them even defected to the other side um and so then they formed National Guard units, and many of these were comprised of the same, the same groups and parties that had become the leaders of the, this violent uh, um, uprising in Kiev in February 2014. And um, so really, it, pretty quickly, this degenerated into an actual civil war. And that waged on for the next year and eventually, the total death toll is estimated at over 14,000 people. But it was largely brought to at least not an end, but to a, a, a de-escalation by the Minsk II peace accord in February 2015. And so um, the... Uh, so that brought, you know, a kind of a fragile peace. They had a ceasefire line, which held. They had a buffer zone on either side of the ceasefire line with no heavy weapons allowed. You wanted to ask something? Oh, well, I just wanted to uh, 
say for people who are just tuning in, this is the Jaws of Justice. I'm talking to Nicholas Davies, author of War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. He's going to be speaking about that topic later tonight at 7 p.m. at All Souls Unitarian Church, 4501 Warwick. But I know we're about shortly to go to a break, so I just wanted to let people know that in the second half of the hour, we're going to be taking calls. If anybody wants to call in, that number is 816-931-5534. That's 816-931-5534. And Nicholas, I see we don't have very much time left, but I do want to ask you about the Minsk Accords, uh, the Minsk II Accords, which was supposed to settle this conflict and which did de-escalate it, um, but uh, ultimately failed for political and diplomatic reasons. And, and you think that, I think you say that the United States was very much responsible for that. So we'll talk a little bit about that if there's time. And if there's not, we will um, come back to it after the break. Yes. Well, I, I, I wouldn't say the U.S. was uh, responsible for that, but it certainly did not um, provide the active support that it would have taken to make a success of that agreement. Um, and so Ukraine failed to implement the political aspects of that agreement. So it became a kind of frozen conflict. And, and the U.S. did keep, especially under Trump, did start arming the Ukrainians to alter the balance of that frozen conflict. Dude, you haven't moved like for a long time. Are you okay? Because I really think like you should move. But the thing is, this spot that we're in right now, this is my spot. Signal to noise moves to 10 a.m. on Thursdays. That's savage. Okay, cool. Well, I guess I better do something with that old thing. Fine, honey, I'll get rid of it. Does any of this sound familiar? Well, you can turn your used-up car, boat, truck, van, or motorcycle into the programs you know and love right here on KKFI. All you have to do is go to kkfi.org, find the support tab to donate your wheels, rudders, or handlebars, or you can call 816-931-3122 ask for the development department. That's 816-931-3122 or go to kkfi.org. Thank you so much for your support, and remember, you can hear your old ride in your new one. Did you know that your smart speaker can play your favorite community radio station, too? Just say, play KKFI to your smart speaker, and stay tuned in to your favorite shows. The future is truly here. Now the calendar for the week of December 5th. Legal Aid of Western Missouri provides free civil legal services to low-income and vulnerable people in Jackson County, Missouri. Interested individuals can call 816-474-6750 to apply. Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America is a very active group of mothers and others. You can learn where their virtual meetings this week will occur at momsdemandaction.org. Monday, December 5th, 6.45 p.m., the Kansas City Criminal Justice Task Force is meeting via conference call if you'd like to join in. The conference call number is 605-313-5573. And when prompted, type in 454777. Monday, December 5th, 7 p.m., Nicholas Davies will speak about the book he co-authored with Medea Benjamin, War in Ukraine, and the book will be available for purchase. This event will be in the Conover Room at the All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church, 4501 Walnut Street, Kansas City, Missouri. Sponsored by PeaceWorks KC, Code Pink, Community of Reason, and Veterans for Peace. Tuesday, December 6, 4 p.m. at the Combine, 2999 Troost Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri. You can join Empower Missouri staff, coalition members, and other advocates for a holiday happy hour. Tuesday, December 6, 6 p.m., Empower Missouri is hosting a virtual Clean Slate Town Hall. 
Local faith leaders will be sharing why their faith calls them to support second chances through automated expungement. Registration info is at empowermissouri.org. Wednesday, December 7th, 7 p.m., Missouri Department of Corrections Virtual Town Hall is where you can attend to learn how to advocate on behalf of people who are incarcerated. The registration link will be on our calendar on our episode page or Facebook page. A list of services, meals, and hotlines specific to sheltering are available at Lawrence Progressive Calendar blogspot.com that's updated daily remember you can review this calendar on the episode page at the jaws of justice show page on kkfi's website kkfi.org as well as on our facebook page we'd like to thank our engineer today stan thomas stay safe be kind to each other we now return to our program This is Margot Patterson with Jaws of Justice, and I'm here talking to Nicholas Davies, author of War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. We're taking calls. If anybody wants to call in with questions, the number is 816-931-5534. That's 816-931-5534. Nicholas, I want to ask you a couple of questions uh, about things you've said in your book. One of the statements I found very interesting uh, is uh, your mention that Joe Biden as vice president during the Obama administration was much more involved in events in Ukraine than has been discussed here. I had watched a webinar early in the first few weeks of the invasion with Glenn Greenwald saying much the same thing, but I've not, I've read very little about it. What was Biden's role in Ukraine when he was vice president? And uh, why do you think we've not heard much about that? Yeah, it's, I I mean, the U.S. role in the events of 2014, you know, which led to the violent overthrow of the, of the Ukrainian government, um, is, I, I mean, to the extent that the U.S. was involved, um, (coughs) this would be the CIA, this would be secret operations. I mean, we we have not had, uh, and and we're not going to get it. At some point, documents will be declassified, a lot of them will be redacted. And as with, with past coups in other countries that the U.S. has been involved in, uh, we, you know, the, the American people uh, have, have not been told what the U.S. role really was uh, behind the scenes, um, which, of course, is why presumably the Russians released the audio tape, uh, uh, you know, a intercepted, leaked audio tape of um, uh, Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland and U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt, discussing their plans for um, a new government in Ukraine. And this is obviously in a context where the existing government had not agreed to step down or anything like that. Um, and, uh, and, they, and they were not only sort of handpicking who would be the next prime minister and what roles other opposition figures could, would play or not play in that government. Um, but they... They also made a rather cryptic reference to Vice President Biden. Um, and they also, uh, um, you, you know, I know there are things I'm not allowed to say, words I'm not allowed to say on the air, but, but Victoria Newland used an expletive uh, with regards to the European Union, basically saying that uh, she, the US did not care what the European Union wanted. And of course, we remember, as we've discussed, these demonstrations in Kiev began by being all about the The desire to join the European Union. And now the US was ready to uh, exclude the European Union on any discussion of, you know, who should be the prime minister of Ukraine. 
And what they said about Biden, though, in this in this call was um, that uh, Newland said she had spoken to Jake Sullivan, who was then Biden's national security advisor and is now today his national security advisor as president. And uh, and that they they would ask Biden to direct, directly speak to uh, these opposition leaders and give them, as they put it, an attaboy uh, and really sort of to put his seal of approval on what they were planning. Um, and this, you know, this is all a bit odd because you, here you have two very senior State Department officials. Their boss was not Joe Biden. Their boss was John Kerry the Secretary of State, but they weren't, there was no mention of Kerry, it was all just straight to the Vice President's office for him to, you know, provide the, really, the the, the weight of U.S. support uh, for the opposition. Well, Nicholas, I'm going to break in here now because I think they, there are two callers, um, one caller, and uh, are you caller, are you on the air, and, and can you Tell yes. us your name and where you're from. Uh, Ron, over in Trenton, please explain about uh, Stalin and Hitler in the 30s and 40s. How many Ukrainian civilians were starved to death or otherwise murdered by Stalin's regime in the 30s? And then how many were killed by Hitler's Nazi invasion in the 40s? Um, what percent of the Western... Ukrainians considered the Nazi army as liberators uh, after having been abused so terribly by Stalin's regime. Thank you. Yeah, well, thanks for the question. Um, yeah, there's the, 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 there is a nasty history. I, I can't give you numbers on exactly how many people died in at each point in that history. However... Um, that there is a nasty history, particularly of the uh, Western Ukrainians. Um, uh, there was a guy called Stepan Bandera who founded a, a group um, known as the UPA, and um, and they actively took part in the ethnic cleansing of Jews and Poles from Western Ukraine, including the roundups of Jews who were sent off to concentration camps and um, just, you know, ma massacres of, of Poles, driving Polish people out of, out of villages, really. And as I say, this is, um, you know, the, these people were Ukrainian nationalists. And um, Stepan Bandera is now regarded by um, a lot of people in Western Ukraine as a sort of Ukrainian nationalist hero. They, they've put up statues to him and, and things like that, as they have torn down statues of Lenin <laughs> and, and uh, old Soviet leaders. They've put, they've put up statues to Stepan Bandera. And one of the groups that became very important in the Maidan uprising, which was called Right Sector, uh, um, they, they actually adopted uh, the flag of the UPA, of the, the, the Banderites from World War II as their flag, which then flew along with the other opposition flags in the, um, in the Maidan. This is a bl black and red horizontal striped flag, just one red, one black stripe. Um, and so, I mean, one of, one of the justifications that Putin uh, put forward, which, you know, we do not accept. I mean, the, uh, the invasion of Ukraine was illegal and Ukraine is not run by neo-Nazis. That, that is not true. But the, these neo-Nazi groups who, who revere Stepan Bandera and, and those wartime activities in World War II, um, they, 
you know that they are they are neo-nazis there are neo-nazi groups and they have played a role in the recent history of ukraine um including in the uprising in the maidan and including in the civil war where some of those groups formed entire new national guard units to go and fight in donbass to fight against the so-called people's republics and um the most infamous of those is the Azov Battalion. There's another one called the Kraken, which has, in fact, been accused. And there's, there's good video documentation of them committing war crimes during the war since February. Um, and these and the Azov Battalion was based in Mariupol, which, of course, was part of the background to the absolutely horrendous and horrific uh, Russian assault on that city that, that possibly killed as many as 20,000 civilians. Um, possibly. That's, that's not proven by any, any stretch, but, but it, that has been accused. Um, so there is this, there is this history. Um, part of what the part of the opposition to Yanukovych came from a party called the Svoboda Party, which which was formed by neo-Nazi groups in Western Ukraine, and they actually won more than ten percent in the 2012 parliamentary election. After since the coup in 2014, their electoral success has been pathetic. The, the Ukrainian people have not endorsed these these groups at all. The, the, the parliamentary election after the coup, they only got about 5%. So their, their, I mean, their electoral support was cut in half. Um, two of their leaders, the leaders of Svo the Svoboda Party and the leader of Right Sector, both ran for president after the coup. One of them got 2%, the other got 1%. So these are, these... <laughs> These um, neo-Nazi groups, you know, did not become the government of Ukraine, very far from it, but they have exercised power on the street and as, as a powerful force in the civil war and in the political opposition to the um, Minsk II Accords to, to prevent the Ukrainian government from implementing the Minsk II peace accords that were designed to bring peace to eastern Ukraine. The, the neo-Nazi groups insisted that Ukraine had to keep fighting until it had defeated the secessionists in eastern Ukraine. Nicholas, I want to ask you also about the far right and how it's affected Zelensky's presidency because he came to power as a peace candidate and then it seemed the far right was able or had a sufficient influence to uh, keep him from uh, implementing those accords. Could you talk a little bit about uh, the far right and how it was uh, able to deflect Zelensky from his goals. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, as it had with his predecessor Poroshenko, you know, who, 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 you know, by launching massive violent demonstrations and um, and by and by spearheading the war, the the civil war, these these extreme right wing groups. Um, uh, yeah, they they did under they kept the civil war alive and they they undermined the political resolution of of the civil war. Zelensky, he he was elected by about seventy percent of Ukrainians across the country. His support was not as great in Western Ukraine, but there were only I think two two provinces in Western Ukraine that did not give him a majority in the. Um, in his election for president, it was it was really 
unprecedented nationwide support for Zelensky on a peace platform promising to finally, this was in 2019 after five years of civil war, he was going to bring peace. And um, and it was highly improbable. I mean, the man was a, an actor and a comedian. He had actually, he, he had a, a very popular TV show, fictional show in which he played the president of Ukraine. And um, so he was elected and he set out. In fact, what they refer to now as Minsk III, he went and sat down again with all the participants in the Minsk II Accord, which is the governments of France and Germany and Russia and the secessionist leaders from Donetsk and Luhansk, and really recommitted to uh, to the principles of, of of the Minsk Accords, and so uh, the first thing he tried to do was to withdraw uh, Ukrainian forces from the the front line and the buffer zone to and pull pull back heavy weapons again and and um, y- you know just to really completely disengage. Uh, from the war, where there were still, you know, there was still uh, a steady stream of ceasefire, ceasefire violations taking place. So, so the first step was a new ceasefire, a solid ceasefire in the east. But the groups like the Azov Battalion refused to pull back. They, they were basically refused to stop fighting. Zelensky literally flew to Luhansk province with TV cameras and news reporters and confronted Azov battalion troops on, you know, with TV cameras rolling and said, I am your president. I am ordering you to to pull back from these positions, to withdraw from the front line. We are, you know, we are going to implement the the Minsk Accords. And and they they, they basically refused. I mean, and and they brought out their supporters in Western Ukraine and around the country to launch big demonstrations. And um, like his predecessor, Poroshenko, Zelensky eventually, uh, well, not eventually, fairly quickly, in fact, gave up uh, his, his plans for peace. I want to turn now to Chris Mann, who's been one of the organizers of your tour. Chris, are you, are you there? And uh, I want to ask you, uh, what inspired you to devote so much energy to this? And, and perhaps you have some questions for, for Nicholas as well. Well, hi. Good morning, everyone. Um, hi, Chris. Uh, hi, Nicholas. Glad you're here. Um, I just wanted to say that Nicholas is also speaking today at Willa's Bookstore, 5547 Truce. Uh, if you can't come to the evening meeting at 7, seven o'clock at All Souls. Um, I, wa- I wanted to say uh, I'm about halfway through your book um, and that to me reading the book is like peeking behind a curtain and seeing how things really played out so I would recommend uh, everyone if if you don't know a lot about Ukraine and Russia and the relationship there uh, this would be a good read read to get Um, In your book, Nicholas, you say uh, the best chance for negotiations is the first month of of a war, any war. That's from uh, conflict mediators. Um, But the chances of resolution diminish after that. How hopeful are you about the Ukraine war? Well, ending. Well, yeah, well, I mean, I think we do have another chance for peace at the moment. Um, as we go into the winter, uh, the fighting will almost certainly die down to some extent. Um, but um, but what has happened since um, <clears throat> since the initial peace agreement, there really was a tentative peace agreement between Russia and Ukraine negotiated in Turkey in March this year. And uh, Boris Johnson went to Kiev on uh, April the 9th, and he basically told 
Zelensky stop talking to the Russians, concentrate on defeating them, and said that uh, the UK, and he claimed to be speaking for the, the quote-unquote collective West, uh, would not be par party to any agreement between Ukraine and Russia. And of course, that put Ukraine in, in, in a very tough spot because one of the things that Russia had actually agreed to was that that instead of joining NATO, Ukraine could have security guarantees from other countries, including Western countries. And so the idea that the West would not be any party to the agreement really put Zelensky in a tough spot. Um, and at the same time, the West was promising, promising him sort of virtually unlimited and unending support for for a long war uh even the 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 you know mainstream western published reports of of uh the the meeting between johnson and zelensky said that johnson promised that the uk and the west were quote in it for the long run so, but now, but the thing is, you know, what can that mean? No side has been honest about what they are actually aiming for here. I mean, how long could this war go on? How much of Ukraine could be completely destroyed by the, this war? The, the fact is that wars end at the negotiating table at some point the two sides have to agree on how to end the war unless they are going to fight until one country or the other is completely destroyed. And that is literally not possible with Russia because Russia would use nuclear weapons before before it was completely destroyed. I mean, that is, that is its, its explicit military policy. Um, but... Right now, we do have a moment. Even though both sides have hardened their positions, both are saying that they will, will not give up anything, they will not give us up a scrap of territory, Russia will not give up the places it now claims to have annexed, uh, Ukraine will not, will not even recognize the independence of Crimea, let alone Donbass. So it seems that they both have very hard positions at this point. But in any negotiation, I, in, in a sense, I see these hard positions as, in a sense, uh, starting positions for negotiations. Um, there are certainly U.S. officials now talking openly and publicly about negotiations, in particular the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley. There are... Um, there is growing popular sentiment, even in the U.S., but also across Europe, among based on opinion polls, to say there must be a negotiated settlement here. There must be diplomacy to to end this war, um, and so there 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 is a chance here, and I I think that you know a, a, a chance to end it sooner was lost in March before. Ukraine, I mean, I'm sorry, before Russia had conquered a whole lot more of eastern Ukraine, before it had uh, established a complete land bridge between Donbass and Crimea through these other provinces. So, I mean, they were ready to withdraw before they had done any of that, as long as Ukraine agreed not to join NATO, which it did in that draft agreement. Um, so a huge opportunity was lost. Thousands and thousands of lives, thousands of people would still be alive if that if that agreement had been pursued. Um, but we have another opportunity now, and I, I, I think uh, you know we are trying to tell our elected officials and to generate public support for uh, a diplomatic resolution and soon soon before thousands more people are killed yes and, and uh could you speak to censorship about this war um that has happened um unless pe Chris, people have all the knowledge 
Chris, uh, I am so sorry. I think that's a wonderful question, but people will have to come to Nicholas's talk tonight to hear the answer to that question or come to Willa's bookstore at 3 p.m. and that's on Troost, I know. I've been talking to Nicholas Davies, author of, with Medea Benjamin, of War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. It is, um, people will read it and realize the war is so much more con complex than what they've been led to believe. Nicholas Davies, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to close our show with folk music for our times. Thrift Bakery performing the Moskva. Was a stormy night in April in the year of 22. The mats are invaded Ukraine. Barbarians rent the world through. The Moscow was a cruiser, flagship of the Black Sea Fleet. With nuclear-tipped missiles, she was the one to beat. Slava Ukraine, glory to Ukraine, sink the bloody orcs beneath the briny main. Stars flew over Odessa and struck the great ship's sides. With a groan she capsized The Black Sea poured inside Mighty explosions followed Roiled the foaming waves The Moskva, it was sinking And debts were being paid Slavia Ukraine, glory to Ukraine, sing the bloody orcs beneath your bright name. The Turks fished out 52, no other sailors were saved. 458 men that night went to a watery grave. Drinking, his eyes were filled with fear. His arrest warrant had been drafted. His dying time was near. Stop Ukraine, glory to Ukraine. Sink the bloody orcs beneath the right name. The Russians lied at first. Looked incompetent. The truth was hardly better. It was inconvenient. The free world it rejoiced as the Moskva it went down to Davy Jones' locker. She had no. Slavia Ukraine, glory to Ukraine, We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about. 
something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guest of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. Please tune in for the rest of our 9 a.m. weekday lineup with the Law and Disorder on Tuesday, Alternative Radio on Wednesday, Cowtown Conversations on Thursday, and Between the Lines at 9 a.m., followed by Understanding Israel-Palestine at 9.30 a.m. on Fridays. Up next is Monday Morning Medicine Show with Dr. Mike. And at noon, Arts Magazine with Michael Hogue. Stick around for jazz and blues in the afternoon and Eco Radio KC at 6 p.m. Then round out your day south of the border with Fiesta Musicale, I'm gonna hold on the best I can And if I fall down I'm gonna get back up It'll be alright You're listening to 90.1 FM KKFI Kansas City Community Radio Good morning this morning In the morning, been a fine morning As morning, been a nice morning in the morning If you and your people love me and my people Like me and my people love you and your people I never was people Since people were people love you and your people Like me and my people love you and your people Was it?